Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. days of the Cold War were an uncertain time, shaped in many ways in the United States, more by anxieties about the Soviet Union than anything else. Personal relationships and government policies alike were shaped by fear of communist infiltration of a newly traditional American society. So where did these fears originate, and how did they shape the 1950s? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the Red Scare, which should be a really interesting time. Definitely. Um, I would like to remind everybody before we get going, uh, HI 101 is a history podcast, so we're not going to be talking about current events at all. (laughs) This is entirely uh, in a historical context. We're not going to talk about anything going on right now whatsoever. That seems uh, fair. For you, but also for the audience. Just a quick reminder, right? (laughs) Um, No, it's one of those things. I say that because it's one of those things that is like constantly socially relevant in some way, shape or form, right? Because it sort of looms really large over American culture in, in a lot of ways, right? You know, not only politically and, 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 and legally, but also like through pop culture and things like that. That being said, I feel like it's one of those things that's not necessarily super well understood other than maybe through media, for example. That's about all I've got. Yeah. So I thought we'd run through it and it's not going to be the longest topic I've ever done. I've been stretching really long lately, Um, but that's okay. I think it's, uh, I think it's well worth examining a little bit. So why don't we get started? My first question would be, uh, are you or have you ever been a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, right? That's the, that's the one thing everybody knows. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and no, the real question there is, do you know why the, the clause, have you ever been a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, is, is included in there? I don't. There was this idea during the Red Scare, like specifically within the 50s, that communists, when they signed up for the Communist Party in the United States, also took a secret pledge to basically never quit the Communist Party. It was a pledge for life. They were not allowed to stop being communists at that point. Right. Which, as soon as you think about it for like half a second, kind of doesn't really make any sense whatsoever, right? Not at all. But that's sort of the tone of like everything that we're going to be talking about today. It's very much a moral panic, um, which is something we've talked about briefly uh, in, in other topics in the past. Things like, uh, uh, you know, Salem witch trials or uh, the satanic panic of the 80s. There's this thing that happens where, yeah, even if there is a real thing going on, which in this case there is, there are actual communists within American society. Whether or not there's something real going on, there's this bigger thing going on in society where it's a lot bigger than maybe the actual real problem you know, extant or not. And uh, yeah, people are going to get very swept up in all of this. Right. Did you know that McCarthyism was not the first Red Scare in the United States? 
I did not know that. Yeah, it's actually known as the second Red Scare. So I figure it's as good a place as any to start to talk a little bit about the first one. We need to kind of check our like world history knowledge on this one. But basically, the first Red Scare is a direct uh, result of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917, as well as the First World War to some extent. There's a few things that are going on in the United States at that time that caused this panic, right? The the most immediate one being World War One is a is a time when you see a lot of like very well established powers um, collapsing under seemingly difficult to understand forces. Now, when you go back and look at it, you know something like the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's like, oh no, that was rotting from the inside, right? Like. But it didn't necessarily seem that way from the outside all the time, especially right. to the general public. And, yeah. and it seems a little bit like panic-inducing, right? When you look at Russia, which was uh, traditionally one of the most uh, authoritarian regimes in, in, in Europe, falling to this very radical-seeming idea of communism, it was very, very upsetting for the general population and for the government uh, in general. Bolshevism as a subset of communist ideology, we've talked about this in, on a number of different topics, but it, it subscribes to something known as vanguard theory. Vanguard theory is this idea that communism won't necessarily come around organically, that it's important for revolutionaries to actively overthrow a regime uh, in order to create the, the the conditions necessary for a new political order to come up. So... Yeah, from what I understand about communism, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like that should be necessary. No, and it's not the only school of, of you know, Marxism. It's you know, not the only uh, uh, belief system here. A lot of, I mean, if you read Marx specifically, it's going to say, he's going to say that the uh, workers of the world are going to develop this class consciousness. They're going to realize their collective power and sort of spontaneously rise up against uh, the owners of the means of production, I see. Uh, uh, taking control for themselves. And, you know, at different points in Marx's life, there's there's different ideas about how that's specifically going to go. Um, but, you know, the, the Bolsheviks specifically are built on this idea that, like, listen, maybe that's true and maybe it will eventually happen. But the best way to bring it about is to educate workers uh, about their position in in the class structure and basically hand them the tools necessary to begin this revolution. Right. They're just giving it a kickstart. The other thing about the Bolsheviks is that they have a international idea of communism, specifically that in a post-revolutionary society, in a uh, fully communist world, there's going to be no such thing as a nation. It's going to be a post-national society. The idea being that well, we, we don't need to get into all the specifics, but basically the idea is it's not going to be just contained to Russia. That's not the original intent of, of Lenin when you look at what he's up to. He wants this to be kind of a cascading thing. This is going to lead to, you know, the, the Truman Doctrine, right? Like this idea of containment by the United States further on in the Cold War, this idea that we can't let communism spread any further than it already has. Right. Okay. Right. But that's, that's one of the roots of it is that it's a, an explicitly stated goal that like we're not stopping at the borders of Russia. We want to spread communism to the entire world which really helps with the the fear part yeah of that. absolutely certainly yeah now specifically in the united states they have a sort of different sort of similar parallel thing going on in their society which is anarchism mm -hmm. and the idea of anarchism is basically just we don't really need a government like what's the what's the government even good for <laughs> that's that's a little flippant but it, it's an idea of like a, a um a society without a set government is going to basically be able to run itself. Anarchism is one of those ones that I have a really hard time getting my head around, specifically because it seems like a lot of the 
main thinkers about anarchism when you start like asking them about specifics they mostly just get angry about it like they don't really want to get into the details of how specifically it would work right um it generally comes down to well people will come to a consensus and that's <laughs> not how people work or consensus work anyways um you know but but a lot of the underlying ideas are somewhat similar to communism in that it's a it's a you know sort of flat societal structure um at least in theory the anarchism in the United States is driven by a number of factors. A big one is that there's a, a massive financial collapse in the 1880s, like really, really devastating. We kind of think of the 1930s, like the, the Great Depression as being like, a, like the main one. Yeah, 1880s yeah. in a lot of ways was worse, uh, depending on who you were, of course. But it was, it was really financially devastating. And out of it comes a, a labor movement in the, in the United States, just like you're seeing labor movements across the world. You have people uh, agitating for, you know, ideas like the eight-hour workday or, you know, literally any workers' rights whatsoever. <laughs> right. You know, and, and it gets into, there are more and less extreme versions of that. So, like, yeah, you have the emergence of, like, the labor union, right, as, a, as an organizing force to give workers as a collective bargaining power against their employers, which has done a lot of really good stuff for workers in in the world over over uh, over history a lot of the things that we think of as givens were uh, agitated for by by unions often facing violence from uh, police private security all sorts of horrible stuff but right. at the other end of that except sort of kind of lumped in are these anarchists who are literally calling for like the downfall of not just the government but society like all society like everything yeah and these anarchists get very, very violent in the United States. There's a lot of um, riots. There are a lot of bombings. President William McKinley is assassinated in 1901 by an anarchist. It's a, a, a man named uh, Leon Czolgosz. He's the son of Polish immigrants who lost his job in this uh, in this financial downturn in the 1880s, and uh, you know was radicalized as a result. Decided that the best way to you know fix the society that he saw as leaving him behind was to bring it down, like quite literally, by killing the president. It was very much seen. This is an era of of domestic terrorism where uh phrases like the bomber always gets through come from right like it's this idea of like the futility of trying to fight against diffused terrorists within society there's a lot of like very interesting parallels he, uh, in he, this time he, he knew there was a secession plan right <laughs> like yeah i mean <laughs> just saying i know i know i know it's just it, you know it's it's i don't know it's a difficult time and and the trouble is with all these leftist movements emerging the population as a, as a whole is having a really hard time distinguishing them so the difference between anarchists assassinating presidents and the local stevedores union who's just looking to like not have to lift more than 200 pounds uh, down at the docks right like that's you know maybe get paid a living wage like those are very much lumped into the same thing often very intentionally by wealthy people who stand to lose a lot of profit by having to give up more to their workers so right. some is a lack of understanding some of it is, some of it is a very intentional you know propagandist uh, uh, bent it's all kind of rolled in together when you get to the first world war there's very mixed feelings in the united states about U.S. involvement in that war. It's very much seen as a European problem, right? At this point in the United States history, not only is it more of a middling power than a, than a necessarily great power, it's also very isolationist and has been for most of its history. World War I is seen at the time as very much like a, 
you know, like it's a family feud gone awry almost, right? It's all these royal families that have these issues with each other, treaties going back sometimes hundreds of years that are all sort of domino cascading, right? And it's seen that way by some Americans and they're kind of going, what's, why would we be involved in this, right? Right. One of the groups that is most vocal for pacifism, for anti-war, for isolationism are these same leftist groups who are going, basically, we don't want to be spending a whole bunch of money on a military to go fight in a war that has nothing to do with us. You know, let's look at workers' rights. You know, let's let's try to improve society somewhat. But once the United States gets into the war, uh, as is true with many war efforts, it's kind of like, well, what do you mean you're against the war? Like, are you not American? Right. And and that's you know that's that's everywhere. Like it's not as though that's a, a special thing. You know? yeah. Every country in World War One has these little. You know, have you have you heard of the the White Feather Society in in, in Canada? No, no. So um, anytime there there was this this group of of uh, young women who, anytime they saw a, a man who looked to be of military age that wasn't in uniform, they would pin a white feather to him as a as a as a sign of cowardice. And this would lead to public shaming and, and sometimes even violence, like like vigilante violence. Yikes. As in, like, why are you not serving your country? And in a lot of cases, it's because they're, like, very legitimate reasons not to be in uniform, right? Like, maybe they have medical issues, for example. Right. To the point that the, uh, the Canadian Army, by the end of the war, had to basically issue special pins for people to wear saying, I tried to sign up for the army and wasn't able to. And that's why I'm not in, in, uh, in uniform. Like, it's not Jeez. as though like th- this, this, this wartime fervor is like very real and it's, right. it's, it's not, you know, it's not anything about all that special, but you know, within, within the United States, that's one of the groups that gets kind of singled out the most is, is these labor uh, movements. And so then you kind of get this milieu of like, are you not for the war because you're an anarchist? Is that, is that what it is? is it, are you not for the war because you're against America? Uh, you know, not, not just like, you know, in a, in a broad way, but in like a specifically revolutionary sense. Right. Right. Then you get the 1917 Russian revolution after first world war. I'm not sure how much you're familiar with this, but there's actually an allied intervention in Russia on the part of the czarists trying to defeat the Bolshevists. So not familiar. Yeah, there's there's a few years of, of civil war, uh, lasts until about 1921, where uh, an international force is is backing up the the white Russians. They call them versus the you know as opposed to the red Russians, trying to reestablish a um, traditional or you know worst case scenario liberal democratic society as opposed to a communist one. And it ends up failing. So that makes communism more of a an overt enemy to the united states it's positioned as a very by its nature communism is is positioned as anti-capitalist but through the sort of authoritarian nature of the the bolshevik revolution it's also positioned as like anti-democratic so you've got two axes in which it seems to be like very anti-american right which starts to feel personal especially when you kind of lose a war that you were helping on I mean, they weren't, they didn't lose a war. Let's not call it that. <laughs> Let's slow down everybody. But they did, you know, contribute some troops and contribute some material and, and financial. But then there's also the Red Terror, which is that after the Russian Civil War, between 100 and 200,000 people, political enemies, are rounded up and killed by the Bolsheviks. Um, it's, it's a pretty serious uh, uh, purge, which isn't a great look. 
not really somebody you want to be associated with, right? Nope. No, no. It's it's very understandable why that's going to very much demonize uh, uh, communism. The fact that communism is a is a an overtly atheistic philosophy does not help things either in this era. Like, there's a lot of things kind of giving it bad PR in the West, basically. So yeah, then you get you know back in back in the United States, this this labor movement doesn't stop because things are going on overseas. In in Seattle, you get a, a general strike in uh, February of 1919. It uh, begins as some uh, shipbuilders unions looking for uh, increased wages, basically. There had been a wage freeze put on during the war as basically, we're at war. We can't afford to pay you more. Do your civic duty and, and work for your you know current bad low wages. We'll increase it after the war. And they went, okay, sure. And then 1919 rolls around and it's like, okay, well, the war is over. We get our pay increase now, right? And, you know, the companies go like, uh, well, you know, and... and We didn't really think the war was going to end. <laughs> <laughs> this is awkward. This is really awkward. Right, right now? I mean, yeah, so they go on strike and there's a lot of support for other from other uh, workers unions in the area that it ends up basically shutting down Seattle for that day. This is mainly led by a group called the um, Industrial Workers of the World, which is based in Chicago. It's a their their idea is they want to create a, a basically a, a one union for all workers. Basically, it, it's it's this um, this idea that well, like you shouldn't need a different union based on your trade or a different chapter of your union based on your uh, your uh, physical location. The more that um, workers can organize in a uh, broad, like national sense, the more bargaining power that union is going to have. The bigger the union, the more bargaining power. It makes a lot of sense, right? It doesn't help that the name sounds super communist. Super communist. Extremely, like Workers of the World Unite, right? You have nothing to lose but your chains, all of that at the end of the Communist Manifesto. Like, it's right, it's, it's right there. Like, yeah. And yeah, that, that doesn't help the optics again of the, of the, of the whole strike. Also, the, the rhetoric going on around the strike becomes extremely inflammatory on the, on the part of the striking workers. Inflammatory how? Oh, like in, in some cases, like explicitly pro-communist. Oh. Yeah. Or pro-anarchist or like, I mean, these are individuals making statements, but they're being represented as the position of the entire strike. Right. And, you know, 1919, there are like you kind of get where these guys are coming from. They're not being treated terribly well. We actually have a, a, a general strike in Canada in 1919 as well, the Winnipeg general strike. It's, you know, anyways, it's off topic, but the point being, this is a, this is a, this is a time in history where workers rights are really starting to get rolling a little bit. The strike becomes so worrisome, like at a high level that this federal committee known as the Overman committee, uh, started, uh, which was started to investigate espionage during the war, actually had its mandate expanded the day after the strike began, specifically to investigate for foreign political influence within the United States. And it wasn't like explicitly stated that it was because of the, the Seattle general strike, but mm -hmm. like it was the day after. <laughs> and it's very much in reaction to some of this, like very quickly heating up strike action, right? Now, the strike actually only lasts five days. It's not a long strike by any stretch of the imagination. It's not terribly disruptive to the city of Seattle, really. In fact, it mostly falls apart by, uh, due to um, 
poor unity among the leadership, basically. Like, it's not as though it's busted up by by the police. It's not as though demands are acceded to. It just sort of fizzles a little bit, right? Like, it's not really much of anything. But it's also not the only thing that ends up happening during 1919. The year kind of starts heating up a little bit more generally. And the Overman Committee, as it investigates various uh, strike strike actions across the country, starts returning like a really skewed but very like threatening view of communism within the United States, which is that, yes, it's here. Yes, it's Russian-backed, so foreign-influenced. And yes, it intends to basically overthrow our society, which is an overreaction on the committee's part. Mm-hmm. It's not as though there's no threat from Russia, but like Russia's kind of dealing with its own stuff in 1919. It's not directly instructing anyone on on U.S. soil. Oh, yeah. When did you say the Civil War ended? 21. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, they're busy. Yeah. And it's, again, it's not as though Russia wouldn't be interested in doing any of this, but again, there's very little evidence that they were. The thing that's not really well understood at this point in the United States is the idea that somebody could be communist and not be a Russian asset because the two ideas are tied so closely together. And those are two very different ideas, right? Mm -hmm. There is a Socialist Party of the United States of America at this point in time. It is thoroughly investigated by the committee, right? Like it's it's not it doesn't really survive this era uh, intact, basically. But there are people who are U- U.S. citizens who believe that more socialist ideas can exist alongside an American democracy, and that nuance really gets lost in this conversation because just a couple of months later an anarchist group known as the uh, Gallianists uh, they're followers of this Italian uh, anarchist uh, Luigi Galliani they time a bunch of mail bombs to go off on May Day May 1st International Workers Day they send them to a bunch of like government officials and and very few of them actually end up making it to their their targets one kind of goes off prematurely and the investigators manage to recognize the rest by uh, uh the packaging things like that uh so so it's not terribly bad but it's also like there's a whole bunch of like the, the attorney general of the united states is one of the recipients of one of these and it rattles him a little bit it's a guy named uh mitchell palmer and he goes on this crusade against anarchists who he is now seeing around every single corner and you can kind of understand why a little bit yeah you know, yeah. it's not a comforting thing to be targeted by mail bombs, but Certainly it's also not. but it's also not the Russians, right? It's not communists, but he is completely un- unable to uh, uh, distinguish the two. Why and, does he make that connection? Um, because the communists are, I think, partially uh, an immediacy issue, right. partially um, a lack of nuance in understanding of the left. Uh, the, distinct, the, the distinction between communist and anarchist is very poorly understood by a lot of people. It's something that's argued about among leftist circles today. So, I mean, like it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit understandable, but this is not a Bolshevik organization sending these. And that's, that's lost on these people somewhat. 1919 sees uh, race riots. It sees uh, violence from a couple of other leftist groups as well. A lot more labor organizing after the Seattle strikes. It, it seems like a very dangerous time. It feels like something is coming to these people that are in power. More anarchist bombs go out. A few more are actually 
uh, closer to the target, Palmer actually gets another bomb. He gets a second one that ends up injuring, I believe, his wife and his housekeeper. Um, they're not killed, but I mean, again, it's it's in your home, right? Like it's yeah. yeah, yeah. Palmer goes to the toolbox of wartime powers, which are usually like extremely overreaching, uh, and uses this to raid suspected radicals in November of 1919 and January of 1920, based on just about anything. Like union membership is by far enough to get you uh, arrested in these raids. It could be practically anything. And again, a lot of this is targeted at the uh, Socialist Party, um, but and, and specifically high-ranking members. But yeah, they go in and they knock some heads. And a lot of these charges don't end up sticking because they're not really based on anything necessarily. But Palmer gets really paranoid about all of this stuff. Again, somewhat understandably. Somewhat understandably, um, yeah. The, kind of the most high uh, level thing that you're going to see out of this is there were actually five members of the New York legislature uh, that were expelled from the New York, New York State Congress. Uh, they were socialist members, like they were members of the Socialist Party. It was basically argued that it's not a real party and therefore they can't be. Anyways, that, that's a whole legal can of worms, but they, they, they were arrested in these raids. So it's not as though it's just leader of the local union or whatever. It's, it's pretty far reaching. Right. Palmer starts basically going on about how there's going to be something that happens May Day of 1920. May Day of 1919 is when the the first bombs go out, right? May Day is, is, uh, yeah, it's International Workers' Day, as I mentioned. It's actually, interestingly enough, the reason that May 1st is picked as International Workers' Day is that back in the 1880s, during that financial crisis that we talked about, there were uh, th- there was a there was a peaceful demonstration in Chicago by workers basically campaigning for the eight-hour work week or eight-hour workday, eight-hour work week. Come on, <laughs> Can you imagine. Um, I'm dreaming about it now. Honestly, uh, yeah, and and police got violent and people were killed and it was it was very messy and and uh it, it occurred on may 4th of uh 1886 i believe um and and so may 1st being a holiday that's common in in europe it was picked as international workers day to commemorate so you know the idea of it sort of commemorating a, a fairly reasonable uh organizing effort by by workers that got blown out of proportion is, is a little appropriate in this situation yeah But this anticipated threat of May Day 1920, when supposedly everyone, every single worker in the country was going to like rise up and and overthrow the government, never materialized. Nothing happened that day. Like nothing happened that day. And it really kind of broke the spell of this worry that had kind of gripped the country for most of 1919, where it's like, what's coming, what's happening, felt like things were kind of collapsing around their ears a little bit with all of these demonstrations, all of these riots, all of these unions striking, um, these bombs going off and, and government officials being targeted. It was, it was very, very tense. And then it just sort of ended. People point to Palmer's missed prediction as, as a major factor in like the end of this, this panic. Right. But I mean, the trouble with moral panics is it can be really difficult to put your finger on exactly what it is that changes, right? It's not as though anarchist violence stopped. There was a bombing up a couple of years later that was in, not not insignificant, but it wasn't huge. And it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, anarchists, what can you do? Like, <laughs> it, it didn't incite the same level of, of, of uh, worry within society. 
there was something very specific about that time. And, and, you know, you can point to bigger factors like, well, the, you know, the, the civil war not having been resolved yet in Russia or, um, the, the very recent nature of the war or like, you know, all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a little bit hard to put your finger on what exactly it is that ends it. And that's the trouble with these, these moral panics. It's not a simple, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of topics where it's like, and then this happened, this person did this one thing and it caused another thing. And it's not like that at all. People stopped worrying about communism a little bit. Maybe it was the jazz music. I don't know. Maybe it was the, it was the good economic times of the 1920s where it was kind of like, who would overthrow this? Right. It's very hard to say, but suffice it to say it, it, it did let up quite quickly. It was a, it was a fairly brief uh, window of time. During all of this panic, the the Communist Party of the United States of America was actually founded at first in in secret. It was basically a group of people who didn't think that um, the Socialist Party had gone far enough. It was very much like a rift a rift within the Socialist Party, which uh, you know post Palmer raids really declined, really collapsed. the The Communist Party of the United States of America was. You know, because of its clandestine nature, it was also much savvier to what it was up against compared to the Socialist Party, which saw it as itself as very much working within the system, affecting change from within kind of thing. The Communist Party looked at it and went, well, yeah, maybe that's possible, but, you know, the adversary we're up against is the apparatus that stood behind Palmer, right? Like this, this extremely easily panicked set of powers that can be drawn against us. And so what they do rather than coming out as like a, a, an explicit political party necessarily is got very much involved in organizing on a community level. So they got very involved in labor organizations. So, um, working with unions to help further labor rights, which is very much in line. I mean, uh, like even Marx saw, uh, labor unions as a, a very strong, um, potential tool in the in the communist revolution like he saw the uh the value of having workers organize themselves uh politically or sort of parallel to politics i suppose sure they were also a very early counter-fascist uh organization they were one of the first organizations within the united states to start pointing to uh some of the potential dangers of the rise of fascism in europe going like hey this seems really dangerous and it's kind of like okay but you guys are the communists though like of course you would say that so maybe they didn't necessarily get the traction that that they they could have but you know, it, they, they, they were quick on the draw on that one. So right. as that became more of a threat within Europe, especially in, in Spain early on, it was kind of like, okay, well, maybe these guys do know what they're talking about a little bit. It was a bit of a draw. They also became associated with like basically any other type of organization you could get your hands on. They were setting up uh, reading clubs. They were setting up uh, insurance companies. They were setting up. They had a um, like a, a fraternal order kind of thing set up. It was called the Associated International Workers Order, which was it was kind of like the Kiwanis Club almost. Like it was like a service uh, organization that also sure. had like you know collective benefits. So it would have like a, you know a special insurance plan, like I mentioned, or you know they'd have meetings every other Wednesday or. Uh, you know, potlucks, things like that. Like right. it was very like social, very like friendly, very community oriented. And the party kind of peaked by, you know, the mid thirties kind of thing. They got fairly powerful uh, during the great depression for 
kind of obvious reasons. I mean, if you've just gone through the Great Depression, maybe communists seem like they might have a couple answers for you. <laughs> right. And that was especially strengthened by the fact that the uh, Soviet Union appeared to, at the time, move quite a bit more gracefully through the uh, Great Depression than the rest of the world did. Mm. Now, I mean, some of that is skewed optics, but some of it is the fact that their their economy is mostly divorced from the rest of the world at that time. But it is sort of a talking point where it's kind of like, look at which power isn't having problems right now. Maybe right. they've got some ideas that could work, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So by the mid-30s, you're looking at maybe 55,000 members of the party, which is maybe lower than you would think for a political party, but it's not nothing. That being said, that Associated International Workers Order had over 200,000 members. Mm. So it was very easy for someone to be involved in a communist party associated organization without specifically being a communist or a member of the communist party. Right. And it could very easily, it, it could be just as easy as joining the wrong union for your trade. You're an electrician, you join an electrician's union. Oops, that's the communist electrician's union. And now it's kind of like, you're kind of a communist by association. And you personally may not have any communist leanings whatsoever. Right. It's like, I just needed some insurance. Right. <laughs> but now that's kind of in your history a little bit. Right. Okay. And this is going to turn into a problem for us a little <laughs> bit later on. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where it was so ubiquitous at one point, well, specifically during the 30s in, in, in American society, that it doesn't carry the same negative connotations that we're going to be seeing when we get to the 50s. The other thing here, too, is that lots of people were explicitly communist sympathetic. That doesn't mean Russian sympathetic or Soviet sympathetic. That's another piece of nuance that, as we mentioned before, gets lost sometimes in, in later hearings, right? You can be communist and not be pro-Stalin. Right. <laughs> this is a possibility. This is a position people are able to occupy. <laughs> it's not always perceived that way down the road. You know, communist is used as a jab by conservative politicians all the time for anything even remotely socialist. Are you familiar with the New Deal? Vaguely. Vaguely. It's just, it's it's Roosevelt's plan to get America back to work basically during the Depression. It's a right. um, public works uh, or a series of public works projects where basically they would pay people to build dams or highways or whatever, which seemed to work fairly well and was decried as as Bolshevik nonsense by certain members of uh, the political class because it seemed kind of like communism if you looked at it a certain way. And it's like... Really, it was just creating jobs. Yeah, the government's creating jobs. Yeah. Colin. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, as, as a Canadian just saying that, I can just hurts my soul a little bit it's a complete it was an extremely reasonable program it was very successful i mean there's things they could have done better but it, it did what it intended to do fairly fairly successfully however a lot of the goodwill that's built up around the communist party in these sort of community oriented uh, organizations or even you know people who were interested in what the communists had to say and maybe attended some meetings of the actual party itself and learned a few things about some different ideas. All of that kind of goes out the window a little bit in 
1936 especially, where between 1936 and 1938, there's something called the Moscow Show Trials, in which now leader Stalin uh, consolidates his power in the USSR by basically executing the entire leadership of the army. It's going to be a major problem for them early in World War II. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole thing. Stalin executed a lot of political enemies. Seeing a trend here too, wasn't there like mass executions after the Civil War as well? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, it's absolutely true that those are are extremely damaging to communism from an image standpoint. It's also true that there aren't that many revolutions that happen that don't involve a significant amount of um, consolidation afterwards. I mean, if we're having this conversation in, say, 1800 or so, democracy looks pretty trash because the French Revolution just did a whole number on a lot of people with the guillotine and really clearly democracy is terrible and we need to all stick with uh, monarchies like god intended right. right like there's there's this and again it's 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 not to it's not to forgive anything that happened in in soviet russia it's just a matter of like it's not necessarily inherent to the uh the the economic system it's inherent to revolution fair enough those are two different things yeah anyways yeah, those, the show trials do not help things, though. Not in the United <laughs> States. Uh, not in many, many places. And then in 1939, the German-Soviet uh, non-aggression treaty is signed, which further damages their reputation. Um, because, again, that that lack of uh, distinction between Soviets and American communists is lost on most people. And the fact that they're getting in bed with the Nazis, not a great look, once again. Right. Um, so you start seeing a downturn again in, 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 you know, the American image of communism, but then the Nazis invade Russia. Now Russia is an ally. The United States enters the war and find themselves on the same side of the war as the Soviet Union. And now, hey, Russia's great. (laughs) We love our Russian friends. They're the best. And... You know, during, you know, 40 to 45, 1940 to 1945, you see some much more sympathetic portrayals of, of the USSR in, in American culture. It, some of them suggested by the United States government, like there are movies made during this time that are essentially pro-Soviet at the suggestion of the, 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 the US government, because it's war and it's propaganda and we need to work with our friends, the Soviet Union. <laughs> Um, Did this generally help with uh, the view of communism in America at the time? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, it certainly made it a little bit easier for people to be openly communist. But I think after the late 30s, that ship has sailed to some extent. Because even while the United States is technically allied with the USSR during the war, neither side really entirely trusts each other Mm -hmm. the entire time. Like, I'm sure you remember this part of the story where it's like, you know, they're, they're, they're shaking hands and smiling and, and taking photos together, but never really 100% trusting each other. There's a lot of like, even before the war ends, there's a lot of talk about like, okay, well, the next war, the one that's definitely coming very soon, is going to be against the USSR, right? Like we all, we all agree that that's the next war, right? Because what they're seeing out of the, out of the Soviet Union is this extremely powerful military force, which runs on just sheer numbers and sheer uh, industrial output and 
the uh, the Western allies, uh, Britain and, and uh, the United States, are terrified of what they're seeing because, you know, after 1944, as as the Allies close in on Germany, for every you know every couple of miles that Britain and America and the United States get in the West. 10, 20 times as much in the East, the, the Soviet Union is taking over. There's all these Eastern European countries uh, that they're just engulfing on their way towards Berlin. And it becomes less about, oh, let's help out our Soviet friends at the end of the war. It becomes more about, we got to stop them from taking over all of Europe. Right. And, you know, I, I know certainly when when I was was much younger, my idea of how World War II works was very much centered on Britain and to some extent the United States. But the, the war in, in, in Europe very much centered on Britain. You know, it's it's all about, you know, nothing really happens between Dunkirk and uh, and D-Day, right? Like it's, you know, maybe, maybe North Africa stuff, right? But right. in the meantime, like 10 times as many troops are dying on the Eastern Front. There's a, there's a whole other war that we're, we're, not even remotely involved in happening over there, which is kind of the real war when you really look at stuff. And yeah, Britain and, and the United States are scared of it for very understandable reasons. So by the time you get to the end of the war, you know, the US is developing the atomic bomb. There is a, a non-zero percent chance that the reason that it was used uh, on Japan was to show the, the the USSR that we had an atomic bomb that we could use. They were kept out of the loop when the United States was working on the Manhattan Project, uh, even though Britain was kept in the loop and, in fact, insist, uh, uh, assisted. By the time you get to the Potsdam Conference, which is basically like the war isn't over yet, but USSR, United States, and Britain are discussing what to do with everything after the war is done, because it's basically done at this point. Truman basically goes up to Stalin and goes like, yeah, we have this new weapon that we're thinking about using to end the war more, more quickly. And Stalin, who has had spies within the Manhattan Project for a significant amount of the, of the project's lifespan, knows that this weapon is coming, is going like, yep, go ahead and use it, no problem, because he knows exactly what's coming. And it's just like, this, this is not how alliances work. This is not a successful military relationship. Right. So yeah, everybody's spying on everybody. There's, there's tons of uh, anxiety surrounding uh, what's going to happen after the war, what the situation between the United States and the USSR is going to be. The war finally ends September 2nd of 1945 with the signature of the, the uh, surrender documents. And three days later, in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, a Soviet cipher clerk who's working at the embassy, uh, the, the Soviet embassy, named Igor Gazenko, defects. He finds out from his boss that he's going to be sent back to the USSR and he decides that he does not want to go. So he loads up a briefcase full of Soviet documents showing all the stuff that they've been spying on this entire time, walks out the door with it goes straight to the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's the Canadian version of the FBI, basically, and goes, I would like to turn myself in, please. And they go, what are you talking about? Go away. They send him away. He tries going to uh, government buildings, and they turn him away, too. He hides out in his neighbor's apartment because he's worried that by this point, the Soviet Union will have figured out that he's defected, which is true. They bust into his apartment that night. He's got his family hiding across the across the hall 
Why wasn't the RCMP taking him seriously? Well, the next morning he goes back to the RCMP and goes, no, really, look at what I'm holding here. And they go, oh, oh, yeah, no, you do seem legit, actually. Come on in. Oh, and they, 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 they ferry him away to, uh, uh, what's it called? Camp Axe, I believe. The uh, British military intelligence uh, camp in, uh, in Canada. It's super cool. Not our topic today. Point being, they spend a lot of time debriefing this guy. The stuff that they learn from Guzenko is not like now not that exciting like it was it was military secrets for 1945 all of that stuff's been declassified what's more important about Guzenko is the fact that he uh revealed number one the presence of Soviet sleeper agents in the west including Canada and the United States um actually leads to 39 arrests including an MP yeah it's actually the only Communist Party member of parliament in 1945. Mm. He also hints at the fact that nuclear secrets have been leaking. Gazenko's an interesting guy in that he was very, very careful about the way he turned himself in. Uh, the, the, if, you've seen, if you've ever seen anything about Gazenko anywhere, it's a photo of him on the stand with a sack over his head, like a white like it looks almost like a pillowcase with holes cut in for the eyes and a, and a mouth. He wouldn't let his photo be taken because he was so worried about his safety. The RCMP ends up uh, uh, giving him a, a, a pseudonym. They, they basically put him in a witness protection program to let him live out the rest of his life. Right. But he testified at a few number, a few more trials about Soviet uh, intelligence in the West. This is like extremely upsetting for everybody because it's kind of like, oh, all those things we've been worried about. Kind of true. Foreign agents active inside our own borders, our own citizens being like, it's, it's real. And in fact, it's a lot more extensive than we realized. And it's not like, okay, the war's, you know, okay, you know, World War II is over. Now we can get to squaring up with the USSR. It's that like, they left the block long before the shot went off, right? Like they're so far ahead of the game. Was US and Canada not spying on them at all? Oh, absolutely. They were spying on them. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, but it was a lot harder to get so deeply planted in the Soviet Union just because of the paranoia of the mm. of the state apparatus. It was it was it's not that it wasn't done. Of course, they had spies there, but it's different when it happens to you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's yeah, it's it's that it's that feeling safe in your bed at night sort of thing. Right. The name that they gave him for witness protection program. George Brown. <laughs> they should have just handed him over. No, he he lived out the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, you know. But yeah, it's just like, guys, that's, that's the most witness protection program name I've ever heard. It's perfect. I love it. A couple months later, in uh, November of 1945, November 7th, actually, uh, an American citizen named Elizabeth Bentley turns herself in. This one is even more scary because she's not a Soviet embassy employee that's been doing some spying. She's an actual American citizen who has been turned by the Soviet Union, by the KGB, to spy for them. She uh, is a for or she's a member of the Communist Party of the U.S. of the United States, and has been funneling info to the USSR throughout the course of the the war. Um, she implicates over 150 people in two different spying rings. She'll continue to testify in anti-communist trials for the next 15 years or so. Why did she turn herself in? She was basically... Uh, the short version is her handler basically told her, why don't you come to the USSR where we can keep you safer? And she went, oh, they're going to kill me. <laughs> 
Right. I'm a loose end. Mm -hmm. Let's not get on that plane. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the short version. Yeah. She was, she felt that she was uh, maybe no longer useful as an asset. Um, so she flipped both of these events kind of terrifying. Like, like we talked about, it's, it's that not safe in your bed at night thing. It's, it's, it really worries American citizens in general. It's sort of like, I guess this very 1984 vibe, right? Where it's like, well, which one of my neighbors like, it's not just this, like, sort of distant foreign power. You could be worried about Nazis because they're these scary bad guys across the sea. But the Soviets could be anywhere. And that's a different kind of scary. Right. There is still, there, there's also still this hangover of, like, the fact that communism is known to have existed in the United States. And it was always seen as kind of vaguely threatening, but that there was this time period where it was somewhat more accepted. And it's kind of like, well, is this okay, actually? Like, I know people who attended meetings, like, isn't so-and-so down the street a member of that organization? And aren't they, are, are they communist associated? Are they not? I'm not sure, actually, because there's so many that I'm not entirely sure. And it just kind of creeps in a little bit. And it's understandable, but there is a level of like panic that's sitting just below the surface here. Right. Yeah. It gets to the point that in 1947, there's an executive order placed, executive order 9835, which is a loyalty test for all federal employees. Basically, if you work for the federal government, you are agreeing to, at the very minimum, upon request, sign a loyalty pledge to the U.S. government and to an American way of life. And at worst, you are agreeing to be investigated for any un-American activities. Oh my. They become very, very concerned about government infiltration by Soviet forces. You know, a lot of this is actually coming from the director of the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover is an interesting guy. In fact, it would almost be interesting at some point to do him as his own topic, just because he's head of the FBI for so long. He's head of the FBI from 1924 to 1972, which is a wild stretch of time to be involved with that organization. Mm -hmm. Hoover is a weird dude. He's got some hangups about, you know, ideas of moral fiber, and he's got this very hyper-developed sense of right and wrong, and is very, like almost cartoonishly all-American, mm. you know, and, and the idea of, of communism existing as a concept just, oh, it keeps them up at night. <laughs> oh, it just, oh, it gets them so angry. And he's largely responsible for developing these loyalty investigations. Basically, he, he, he suggests that this be a, a useful thing to have and he he happily goes away to work on developing this like how do we figure out who's a communist in this government we got to get to the bottom of this and the fbi under hoover is if they do one thing well it's overreach their limits of power <laughs> <laughs> they start going to work on investigating anyone and everyone that they can come up with the remotest justification for and the amount of investigation that's done is it's got a where there's smoke, there's fire kind of feel where it's like, well, if the, if the FBI is investigating all these people, like up to up to 20% of federal employees are investigated at some point. If all these people are being investigated, it must be because there's something going on, right? Right. And I mean, 
yeah, actually, there were there were communists in these positions. And there were Soviet spies among some of those communists. It's not as though nothing happened here. And that's that's a really important part. I feel like the 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 pendulum kind of swings hard the opposite way when talking about the Red Scare, where it's kind of like, and nothing ever came of it. No, that's not true at all. There were Soviet operatives in the United States. Some of them were even found by these methods. That's not really the issue with any of right. this. Okay. What's wild is that Hoover is is so he's so tied up in all of this that he's taking this shotgun approach that will end up ruining lives. Because the thing is, once you've been discharged from the federal government by uh, for failing their loyalty test, where do you get a job now? Yeah. Who will take you? Nobody. Especially, especially in an environment of panic over the idea of communism, where it's kind of like, well, if you were fired from the government for questionable political leanings... Like, how can I trust you? Yeah. Like, they've got the best of the best on this and they found you wanting. Come on. I'm not, you know, no, you can't work at my hardware store, I guess. <laughs> but that's that's a reality for a lot of these people. There's an organization in the uh, House of Representatives known as the House Un-American Activities Committee, often referred to as HUAC, H-U-A-C, that's been going since 1938, specifically to look into communist activity. And... You know, during the war, it gets very distracted by investigating claims of Japanese espionage during the war. But now that the war is over and that communists are apparently among us, it very much turns its attention back to investigating all of these claims of communism. And, you know, the first five years or so off after after World War II are, are very like this low level simmer of like, yeah, there's some people that are really riled up about this. And yeah, there's been a couple of things that are going wrong, but we're still sort of holding it together. There's like a finger in the dam kind of thing. And then 1949 and 1950 come along. In 1949 and 1950, just just like put yourself in the headspace of the average American citizen after World War II. You're concerned about these Soviet spies, right? 1949 and 1950 come along. You get, in 1949, the Soviets managed to develop their own atomic bomb. We just lost our military advantage. Right. We've seen what those bombs do. We don't want them used against us. In 1949, Mao takes control of mainland China. Okay, so now the communists are spreading. This is what they said they wanted to do all along. (laughs) Right, right. Despite U.S. support for the opposing forces, the Kuomintang. So again, kind of like that Russian civil war, it's kind of like, well, we backed the we backed the Republican forces and it didn't work. If we can't defend those other countries, what can we do to defend ourselves? Okay, sure. And and I mean that's a false equivalence, but you can see where it came from. Sure. In 1950, the Korean War begins, which is a war between communist forces and the traditional Republic of Korea. Uh-oh, more places are falling. I mean, this isn't the first time that communism has popped up post-war. There was an issue, uh, an incident in Greece that was suppressed by the United States. But like, again, it's like, okay, well, this is continuing to spread. This is wildfire. This is where that Truman doctrine of like, no further. Uh, this cannot spread any any further than this. We can't allow it any. Uh, we can't allow communism to spread. We have to stop it in Korea, not because we care about Korea, but because we care about stopping communism. If we don't stop it there, we can't stop it from getting to ourselves. Right. Okay. And then in 1950, there is the positive confirmation that the uh, Manhattan Project was infiltrated by the the USSR. Mm. They find out that the most secret project that they've ever worked on riddled with communist spies 
And that's kind of... Soviet spies specifically. Specifically Soviet spies. Yeah, yeah. they are feeding this information back to the Soviet Union. There are. It, it's, it's hard to say how much of the Soviet bomb is actually based on American technology because it wasn't really the technical aspect that was holding up their, uh, their bomb project. It was more uh, access to enriched uh, uranium. Mm. Most stuff I saw pegged it as maybe a year to two years accelerated by American technology, which is something, but you know. They would have gotten there on their own either way. It's more the invasion of privacy kind of thing. Right. And in 1950, a uh, senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, stands up at a public speaking event that he's at, holding a piece of paper that he claims is a list of 205 known communists working in the State Department. There are no names on that list. It is a lie. But it is just incredibly frightening for everybody. Where did he claim to get this piece of paper from? From the State Department itself. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. They were just doing nothing about it. And are we as Americans going to stand for that? I don't think so. I think that's a good place to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we will talk about... Actually, I think we'll talk about Hollywood first. Okay. Back on HI101, here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we've been talking about the beginnings of the uh, McCarthy era, the second Red Scare. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to pivot hard and talk a little bit about Hollywood. I think Hollywood uh, and and sort of the blacklist gets disproportionately uh, talked about when when discussing the Red Scare for, for two reasons. One is that it's Hollywood and it loves telling stories about itself. So you see a lot of stuff about the blacklist when talking about communism in this era. But the other one is that it actually does play a fairly central role in the public's perception and understanding of the place of communism within American society. There had been accusations for years of Hollywood being a bastion of of communist sympathies. And some of this was entirely founded. A lot of a lot of people uh, working in Hollywood had communist sympathies or even were members of the Communist Party at certain points in time. But again, lots of people from all sorts of different uh, backgrounds were communists at certain points in time in the United States. Right. And the other is that, you know, just like any other industry, there were unionization efforts within Hollywood and um, various organizations smeared those uh, efforts as being communist. It's one of the most organized labor groups in the United States when you think about it. Think of something like the Screen Actors Guild or the Writers Guild or Directors Guild. Like everybody, like in a lot of cases, you have to be a member of one of these organizations to even work on a project. Right, right. Highly, highly organized. Yeah. And in the 40s, you get... Walt Disney taking out full page ads, accusing his entire illustrating staff of being a bunch of commies because they wanted a pay raise and some workplace organization. Like it's it's oh, that weird. kind of thing. Yeah. And like when that happened, it was like people kind of laughed at Disney. Like it wasn't necessarily taken uh, at face value every single time. But like this is a tactic that gets used every single time workers try to organize. Well, they're communists. We can't have communists. This is America. Like it's 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 very like reverting to lowest common denominator in some of this rhetoric. Right. But you know, you say something often enough, often enough, and loud enough, and it sort of has a way of becoming true, especially when there's a kernel of truth at the middle of it. Right. 
we, we talked about during the war sympathetic uh, USSR sympathetic films being made, right? You know, there was one called uh, Mission to Moscow that was put out by Warner Brothers at the behest of the U.S. government that was uh, painting the USSR in a very friendly light because they were about to go to war on the same side and like, you know, propaganda, right? Absolutely. Sure. Within six years, like in 1947, there are people vowing to investigate Hollywood because the uh, the Writers Guild has basically said that they will not allow anyone to work on a movie unless they confirm that they are not communists. They have to sign a thing saying, I am not a communist. And a lot of people working in Hollywood are refusing to do this, not necessarily because it would be perjuring themselves, but just because, what? No, this is <laughs> stupid. Right. And that's where a lot of this starts is like, no, I don't have to do that because why would I have to do that? Yeah. Nobody should have to do that. Right. Again, not not that it's that much different than than other places, but it has a lot more visibility. There are a lot of really smart and very principled people working in the industry at this point in time that are just going, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a violation of like my constitutional rights and uh, you can't make me do that. Trouble with constitutional rights and private businesses is that they don't always necessarily intersect in the way that you're expecting them to. For example, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees freedom of speech uh, and freedom of peaceable assembly, which would be the two that we would uh, want to focus on. There's other things that it guarantees, but those are things that the government's not allowed to limit. The studios are allowed to limit pretty much whatever they want. Right. But it gets to a spot where like this this fairly public disagreement between the Writers Guild and certain members of writers and actors, uh, it, it gets public enough to catch the attention of HUAC, the, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And they go, you know what, I think we better look into this whole Hollywood thing because they're an investigatory uh, House committee. That's the sort of thing they do. They call witnesses. Uh, they call, I think it was 79 different witnesses to testify about the state of, um, you know, communist activity within Hollywood. And, you know, they get a bunch of people who who come in and are very willing to talk about how, like, yeah, everybody in Hollywood is definitely a communist. And it's, you know, a lot of very well-known people, a lot of well-known actors that just happen to be very conservative and sure have heard about people attending meetings or maybe have just heard people complaining about the, at that point in time, conservative government. I, I, it, it, it runs the gamut, right? Right. Ronald Reagan actually gets his start in politics in the fifties as a spokesman for the, uh, for the studios against communism. Okay. It, he's not getting into actual politics for a long time, but that's that's how he starts. Is yeah, he's just yeah. an actor, and he's hired to do these anti-communist spots, and he legitimately hates communists. Um, that that part is very true. <laughs> um, it, when this this hearing is announced, there's this backlash from all these actors. There's, you know, again, very well-known people. Humphrey Bogart is a is a really common uh, one to point to at this point. Um, Judy Garland, like all these people are that are involved, they they form this uh, this group called the Committee for the First Amendment, uh, and they they do this like very highly publicized tour around America, speaking out about how important um, 
you know, freedom of speech is in the United States and how censorship or persecution based on political beliefs is is not what the United States stands for. And like this very like high minded uh, uh, sort of political defense of the idea that why should we have to go to this committee and 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 answer for any of these ideas that anyone anyone's had right like right. It, it, it's not so much saying like no there's no communists in hollywood it's saying what if there are <laughs> what, what's what's the problem here yeah 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 and and it's a it's a bit of a nuanced uh argument because if you ask a lot of americans at this point yeah it's a big problem no nope, we don't want any of those but they're also not wrong from like a constitutional standpoint that like, well, there's no no law on the books against being communist at this point. Right. The hearings also include a number of people who have been accused of uh, being members of the Communist Party. It's a group known as the Hollywood Ten that are called uh, at this first round of hearings. And all 10 uh, witnesses refused to answer questions on First Amendment grounds, basically saying like the, this line, not, not even refusing to answer questions because uh, of what the answer is going to be, but refusing on on constitutional grounds, saying like I shouldn't have to answer for this. What what is this committee doing, wasting our time with this? Right. Go do some real work, basically. Which they all expected to be fairly strong legal grounds, and their legal representation considered it to be uh, fairly strong legal grounds. The only person who actually does testify at all in this first round is a. Uh, the poet Bertolt Brecht, uh, who testifies and then immediately leaves the United States never to return because he basically went, listen, this is a whole sham. I've seen this happen before in Europe. I don't like where this is going. Um, I'm out of here. The Hollywood 10, though, they all refused to to testify. And the committee went, you're right. This isn't something that you have to answer based on First Amendment grounds. Uh, however, we can hold you in contempt of Congress. And so we're just going to go ahead and arrest you on those grounds. Slap them all in jail. Possibly the most famous one uh, uh, member of the Hollywood Ten would be uh, a writer, Dalton Trumbo. Do you know the name? No. There's a movie about him a couple years back. Brian Cranston played him. Yeah, pretty good. He wrote a bunch of very famous movies. Spartacus was his big comeback after the after the blacklist was done. Gotcha. Uh, he, he had one of my favorite quotes, I think, of the entire blacklist era, which was that. Uh, he, he basically said like, yeah, um, I think the verdict is, um, fair and accurate. I do have a lot of contempt for this Congress. Um, so I can't really argue against that. They had a lot of contempt for me too. So yeah, I, I, my, my disagreement isn't about whether or not that's true. It's whether or not it should be a crime. And it was just, just always struck me as very funny. Um, he, he had been a member of the communist party, by the way, it's not as though, he had done nothing wrong and like it, well i mean he never mind that's a very loaded thing that i just accidentally <laughs> said it's not as though he had technically committed a crime at yes. that point in time yes. yeah. but yeah he had he had been a member of the communist party at one point and remember what we talked about at the top of the show uh this line of questioning are you or have you ever been a member of the communist party originates in these hearings where there is sort of this assumption that if you've ever been a communist or a member of the Communist Party, that A, you're still a communist, whether you admit to it or not, and B, that you are a Soviet asset. Let's keep that in mind as we go forward. <laughs> the jailing of the Hollywood 10 puts this massive chill on Hollywood. 
RKO Studios essentially shuts down because of it. The uh, the owner Floyd Odlum basically was like, "I want out of the business now." It, it was not the strongest of the studios at that point, and he basically went, "I don't want to deal with this. This is too much. I just wanted to make movies. I'm out." Uh, sold it to I think he actually sold it to Howard Hughes, but it it, it uh, collapsed soon afterwards. There's writers whose credits were struck from existing movies because they had been found uh, guilty in these uh, in these hearings. These blacklists were created basically by third party groups who kind of took on this like vigilante role um, where they were making up lists of people who had any sort of association with the Communist Party with absolutely no evidence whatsoever. So it's. It runs the gamut from is a known member of the Communist Party to is friends with people who are parts of organizations that may be associated with the Communist Party. And it right. doesn't really matter which one you are, because all of a sudden the studios are kind of like, but is it worth working with you, though? You're on the list. You're on the list. There are there are multiple like and they're they're just private companies like these these are zines basically like they're they're just they're just organizations that are publishing these lists what's their motivation anti-communism they they're they're true believers yeah yeah they're looking to they're looking to purge communism from hollywood you know groups like the um there's one called red channels is probably the most famous one these these lists of sympathizers are massively harmful to Hollywood as a whole, because getting on this list is a potential death knell for your career. And it's kind of like, you hope you don't get on the list. If you do get on the list, you hope that you're famous enough that the that the studios will stand behind you, which honestly is not a guarantee. Like there are extremely famous actors whose careers are ruined by these lists. Charlie Chaplin leaves the country for two decades because of it. Like just gone. He doesn't come back until he wins a lifetime achievement award at the at the Academy Awards in the sixties. Right. And he's kind of like, well, I'm not working in this climate because he's accused. And, and I mean, it's you know, the number of people who lose jobs over this is is, is significant, and a lot of them don't work until yeah, the early sixties uh, if they work again at all. Hmm. And this this lead from Hollywood is very much followed by the rest of the United States, where. This idea of guilt by association is is very much put to the forefront. It's it's voluntary on the studios' parts, right? It's kind of going like, well, we're trying to avoid trouble as like a private business. Like we just don't want it's it's volatile, right? If you're looking at two actors for a role and one of them is has been published on this list and might get called up as a as a communist at any moment by HUAC, and the other one is is squeaky clean, well, which one are you gonna hire? Yeah, yeah. It's a no-brainer. But all of a sudden, guilt by association seems to become the norm in society as a whole because it's very visibly being practiced by Hollywood. Well, I mean, why not as as part of any other industry, right? The FBI continues like pushing bounds on their investigations. They're actually doing they're actually going as far as giving findings of their investigations on the download to HUAC. To use in their hearings, which is super illegal. Mm-hmm. That is a separation that's kind of supposed to be important. The government's not supposed to have access to like FBI findings, right? Not not in that way specifically. There are there are proper channels to go through for that sort of thing. 
they double their workforce between 1946 and 1952 just to keep up with all this communist communist investigation. They go from three and a half thousand employees to seven thousand employees in the course of five years. <laughs> they are breaking and entering people's homes looking for evidence. They are stealing evidence from people's homes to use in these investigations. They are conducting illegal wiretaps on people, listening for anything that they can find. They are intercepting people's mail, looking for any evidence of communist sympathies. And any of this can be submitted as evidence in a trial against you. Because remember, they have the authority to investigate any federal employee. And that's, yeah, it definitely goes for like, you know, senators, but it also goes for like, mailmen you know it, it can be anyone right it can be anyone that's that's remotely tangentially related to the federal government and will be outside of that as well um, because anything that they find in these investigations that would suggest that somebody was was uh, a communist sympathizer or a communist they would just leak to make sure that the right people heard about it so all you needed to do was appear to be sympathetic to communism and uh, in some way related enough to a federal employee who did the same to be associated by these investigations. So the Hollywood 10 mm -hmm. were arrested on contempt of Congress. Mm -hmm. What are they arresting all of these other people on or what are the trials about? Like, what are the charges? Because it's still they're not they're not they're not trials, though. These, the, this is this is about that executive order that does not allow any communists to work for the federal government. So they're just being fired. This right. isn't. This is for all intents and purposes an internal investigation. But they're also sort of like just letting the mob do its work a little bit with these leaks, right? Mm. So like, it's kind of like getting doxxed a little bit. Right. You know that thing where people will find like the personal twitter of like activists and then like call their bosses and be like did you know so and so was at this protest it's kind of like that except that the fbi is doing it right huh. huh which has a lot more power to it yeah yeah they're also in these investigations collecting any information that could be used to blackmail people I saw somewhere that it is extraordinarily likely that J. Edgar Hoover had the largest personal collection of pornography in the entire world because any any photos or any film that he found, he would keep. There was a there was a standing order to send it directly to him personally. He would keep them on file and use them to blackmail anyone who was giving him trouble. Oh man. He would use them to blackmail people into naming names. Right. He was a weird dude. Yep. Sounds like it. it. It's some messed up stuff. They were forging documents to discredit key organizers as informants. So basically, when they found out that someone was actually a communist, they would make up documents to make it look like they had been in contact with the FBI and were planning to name names and then plant it with these organizations to make them turn on their own in the hopes that it would expose more people in the fallout. Right. This is all super illegal. They were able to call in the IRS to audit people. That shouldn't be possible. They did it. Jeez. Yeah, no, the overreach in this whole in this whole thing is absolutely wild. Um, a lot of people refer to this era as like McCarthyism. Right. He is not nearly the driving force that, that Hoover is in any of this stuff. That man hated communists, like a lot, and just kind of didn't care who he ran over in his pursuit, right? Right. 
the, the societal ramifications of, of being accused in any way are, are extremely detrimental. Like, I mean, yeah, in a lot of cases, it's like a matter of like losing your job. But again, it's who hires you after that right. or being discredited in your community, uh, ruining personal relationships. All of that stuff is, is happening in droves. And again, it's not as though they didn't find any real communists. No, but there for are... everyone they caught, how mm-hmm. many were just completely yeah. unrelated Exactly. There is a trial in 1948 where a, a guy named Hiss is uh, accused of espionage during the Second World War. And while he did maintain his uh, his uh, innocence for the rest of his life, it does appear that he was most likely a Soviet asset. He had also been a member of the Communist Party of the United States. So they found him. There was a, a couple. Um, I forgot to put it in my notes. I completely meant to. I believe they were the Rosenbergs, which is a very like wholesome like American town name. Uh, the two of them were uh, executed in 1953 for espionage. Like it, it was like treason, treason level espionage. The amount of stuff they were sending back to uh, the Soviet Union. So it's not as though none of this stuff happened. There were Soviet spies that they found and rooted out and stopped. And honestly, a lot of that work probably did prevent further Soviet spying because, you know, they busted up actual spy rings. It's the collateral, right? Yeah. Like there's another there's another committee formed in 1950. It's the the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. And this is the one that's given to Joseph McCarthy in 1952. Uh, he's head of the Sem- Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. These names all suck, man. They're so bad. <laughs> <laughs> like they did something exciting, please. It's I, I cannot keep them. I, I have to like read them word for word. Cannot remember a single one of these. Right. Um, McCarthy comes late to the game. Most of the real arrests have been made by the time he starts up his investigations. But we kind of have to talk about him a little bit. He starts on investigating, you know, quote unquote socialist organizations, things like the the State Department libraries, like the the libraries that they set up in you know what do you call them embassies do they have any communist literature in them searching through there's like literally book burnings like he he gets them to burn any communists he doesn't explicitly order it but like yeah you know yeah anyways there's 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 book burnings as an indirect result of these uh banned books lists that are that are sent out any media organizations are are right pickings for him he's going through the media and it's kind of like for McCarthy, he was very unsubtle about the whole thing. He was very much a bully about it. When Hoover's going through, he may be a hound dog, but like he's looking for anything actionable. When McCarthy is going through, he's asking things like, you criticize the American government about this thing. Does that mean you're a communist? Like it's very like it's crass versions of this hunt, right? Right, right. The reason he got this this gig was that list that we talked about before, right? Claiming that he had all these names of State Department employees that were communists and never been reckoned with and it was kind of like okay well this seems like a guy who knows what he's doing when he's going after communists let's give him the the investigations committee and mostly he used it as a forum to like yeah bully people did he find communists yeah did he find soviet spies no Mm. not really and mostly what he found was people who at some point in their life had been tangentially related to, you know, in those organizations that we talked about off the top, right? Right. That's the sort of stuff he was finding. The legal weight, once you start going outside of the um, federal employees, comes from 
a couple of places. First, they start using the 1940 Smith Act, also known as the Alien Registration Act. This is what they used to round up Japanese American citizens and put them in the internment camps. But part of the language of this uh, act makes it a crime to advocate for the overthrow of the United States, which under the Senate's understanding of that language includes holding communist beliefs because of the implicit revolutionary well revolutionary tendencies of it right right okay uh, this idea of upsetting the uh the balance of society the order of society uh again at this point in time uh communism is seen as as anti-democratic as well as uh anti-capitalist so all of that stuff is is used as justification to charge anyone outside of the state department that doesn't have a lot of teeth though especially because it's a wartime act, right? So in 1950, a new uh, piece of legislation is put in place called the McCarran Act, which uh, requires the registration of all communist organizations with the attorney general, which gives them the ability to track anyone who does register and keep an eye on them. Anyone who doesn't register is then in violation of the Registration Act, and they can put them in jail for that. Which is kind of a roundabout way of doing it. Yeah. This is the sort of thing where the First Amendment starts looking like it might be a little bit of trouble for them. Remember the peaceable assembly part yep. of the First Amendment? Yep. Yeah, that's trouble because now it's actually the government doing it, not just uh, private business. Right. It's not great. And it's not as though no one was speaking out against it. There are a lot of people speaking out against what's happening there. There's a um, uh, Senator, Margaret Chase Smith, who's... Um, uh, a Republican senator that is right from 1950 basically saying, like, this is unconstitutional. We can't be doing this. Like, this makes us no better than, which is you know, strong, you know, strong rhetoric. But like her point being, we're going to lose ourselves if we're going down this road. Like, if we're breaking our own core beliefs and values to get to these people, like, what are we accomplishing here, right? Right. There's... A Communist Control Act of 1954, which outlaws the Communist Party, it has zero teeth. It's never actually done anything. It's technically still on the books in the United States. It's just not really... It was it was symbolic more than anything. Right. Some individual states passed really extreme laws. Michigan talked about life imprisonment of any communists. Uh, Tennessee proposed the death penalty. Uh, I don't believe anyone was prosecuted under either of those, but, you know, people are getting fired up here, right? Yeah. Hundreds of people are arrested. Thousands of people lose jobs over all of this, right? There's a parallel aspect of all of this Red Scare stuff that we should probably touch on, which is uh, now known as the Lavender Scare. Uh, this is based on a, a comment by... Uh, uh, well, it's based on a book published, I think, 2004 or so. Um, but the, the name comes from a, a comment from a, a government official referring to um, homosexuals within the... Uh, federal government is lavender lads which is a huh. yeah something just reeks of old timey about it, that right yeah i feel like i should be more upset about it than but it's it, yeah i feel so too. detached from whatever it's getting at that exactly anyways um you know it it is it is currently uh accepted terminology though for uh this this event which is the persecution of the LGBTQ community during the same period of time. You see a reaction after the war across society, bringing it to much more traditional, much more conservative values, right? It's this like return to normalcy tendency, which very 
strongly and deliberately excludes anything other than the the, the nuclear family, the Norman Rockwell, right. you know, any of that stuff. A lot of this results from longstanding military issues with gay men. They did not want gay men enlisting. Uh, in uh, 1943, I believe it was, it was made explicitly illegal for gay men to serve in the U.S. military. This also happened around the same time. It was illegal in 1943, but they began screening for homosexuality in 1941 in the same test that they began screening for any psychological issues. There was this concern, especially after World War One and shell shock and whatnot, that uh, they needed to screen for any psychological issues for soldiers as a basically a liability issue, right? And so... You know, the first year of screening, it, it went into place in 1940. It was only for psychological issues. In 1941, uh, screening for homosexuality was rolled into the same thing. This is sort of one of the places where the two things become associated. It kind of reaches its peak in the 60s when homosexuality is diagnosed as a psychiatric illness. Right. Um, but it's already being associated this early on. Partially because of this, society starts kind of conflating the two things. Um, it's both are linked to... A perceived morality issue, um, weak moral fiber kind of thing, right. uh, an anti-Americanness, and a uh, vulnerability to outside influences. Um, there's this idea that LGBTQ folk are much more susceptible to blackmail because of their unaccepted nature in society, and therefore more vul- vulnerable to being flipped into Soviet assets. That. Jeez. That vulnerability being created by American society and the, the circular logic that's happening here. Is yeah, it's pretty brutal. Really painful, yeah. but I'm, I, I guess I kind of follow the, the the logic based on the situation that's been committed that's been created here. Painful you know what I mean? Is, yeah. There's also this idea that this this underlying moral idea that the same things that make people bad Americans could either make them. Uh, gay or communist or both that it's sort of from the root of the same problem again this is part of that moral panic aspect of it that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever yeah but there is such a concern about gay people being uh vulnerable to foreign influence that there's another executive order in 1953 executive order 10450 banning all homosexuals from service in government full stop this stands in some way, shape, or form until 1995. Damn. When Clinton flips it for the better, question mark, don't ask, don't tell policy, that is the improvement over this executive Ugh, order. Right, yeah. But it's all part of this, this, as I said, this return to very traditional values that, that goes along with the, uh, the Red Scare. And over 5,000 people are fired under this executive order more people lose their jobs due to being uh homosexual than links with communism wow all the people involved in this story so far that we're talking about going after communists are also going after lgbtq folk as hard as they can hoover was uh, uh vehemently uh homophobic to the point that people were often accusing him of being homosexual it, it, that's a that's a real question mark up in the air uh there are lots of people on either side of that and i'm not going to take a position but you know there there is definitely a a stereotype of of uh kind of self-hatred in that community and uh sometimes it's just regular hatred but you know 
um, there, there, there were, there, there have been lots of accounts of, of, uh, of Hoover's personal life. He was, uh, you know, he, he, he lived alone until his like well into his forties and he had many very close male friends and, you know, these things kind of, yeah, sure. the, the, these stories write themselves sometimes, yeah. especially when somebody's that vehemently, uh, anti-homosexual. Yeah. So anyways, that, that being aside, uh, McCarthy was also looking for uh gay people seeing a strong link between uh homosexuality and communism there's a there's a very vulgar quote from from him that i'm I'm not going to repeat verbatim but essentially saying that if you're against me you'd have to either be a communist or gay that's the only two reasons you you know those, those are the only two types of enemies i have basically right um he yeah it's it's a it's a portion of this story that doesn't get talked about a whole lot and and i don't think we need to linger on it necessarily but it is a very real aspect of that moral panic and that return to traditional uh, traditional american values so right. yeah uh, significantly more uh, or or at least as impactful on day-to-day people's lives uh, as as associations with communism. Mm. Just like the first Red Scare, this comes to a relatively abrupt end, at least it kind of seems that way, um, as, as things cool down. In 1954, McCarthy's attention shifts to communism in the military, uh, especially the Air Force. And it's getting kind of popular enough at this point that ABC is willing to televise some of these hearings. Uh, especially, uh, specifically some air force hearings and what people see on TV is like, Oh, this guy's a brute. Like he doesn't let people talk. You find out that evidence is being submitted in secret, that people being accused aren't allowed to see the evidence being submitted against them, that they aren't being allowed to face their accusers, that they aren't being allowed to cross examine their accusers, all like very core legal values in the United States. Like that's just due process stuff, right? A lot of these people are claiming fifth amendment protection rather than first amendment at this point, because it's like, well, fifth amendment is, is right to, uh, uh, refuse self-incrimination. So you don't have to give testimony that incriminates yourself. And the way that the, uh, both HUAC and the Senate committee get around this is going, well, okay, if you've refused to incriminate yourself, then if you that means that you know something, and if you know something, and you don't give us names of other communists, then we'll find you in contempt. So you have a choice, essentially, is either name names or testify on your own behalf. Right. At which point you don't know what evidence you're facing, you don't know who's accusing you of what, and you have no idea whether or not you're going to be found guilty, regardless of your personal affiliations. I don't know what the best course of action is in that case like it's 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 wild because there's essentially zero rule of law at that point you have no uh expectation of of real justice so if it's televised people Mm -hmm. can see this now and are very upset about it there's a strong push from you know within the government uh that senator smith that we spoke about briefly before she's uh, very outspokenly critical of it uh, along with uh, a number of other senators i think there's seven seven of them total uh, republicans that are against all of this was mccarthy on board with it being televised yeah he was just so confident that what he was doing was cool correct and that the people would be behind him Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. There's also uh, the media was extremely critical of him, uh, especially um, CBS broadcaster Edward R. Murrow. Uh, he had a news show called See It Now. He was a, a journalist and, and anchor. Uh, have you seen Good Night and Good Luck? 
strongly recommend extremely good movie uh mainly focusing on him uh but tangentially about mccarthyism uh, mccarthyism as well an extremely uh level-headed it's it's what he's one of those like golden age broadcasters where it's just like he's so smart mm. So well spoken, like it's just it's it's just a delight to watch any footage of this guy. Mm. Brutally critical of of what McCarthy had to say, right? And then you know, as as the as the trial progresses, you get to the very like famous um, "Have you no decency?" line. I'm sure you've heard that one before, right? Yeah. Essentially, what happens is that there's a, a a group called the National Lawyers Guild, and it's a it's a left leaning lawyers guild. It's essentially the only people who will actually defend anyone accused by any of these committees. Mm. Uh, they were burgled 14 different times by the FBI who would raid their offices looking for information on their clients and use that against them in their their trials. Yeah. Just wild. Brutal. Just wild. In this in this trial, though, um, McCarthy is uh, going after an Air Force uh, uh, lawyer, Joseph Welch, and basically asking him to testify about members of this guild uh, who may have who, who defended communists basically that's all he wants to know whether or not they defended communists which in his mind is enough and that's where the the, the long last of you know decency uh line comes from he just snaps on on mccarthy and basically tells him off he's like i i didn't actually think it would be this bad i didn't think you would go this far like what's wrong with you and it was a real turning point in the, in the trials where it was like oh somebody's standing up to him finally like yeah maybe some of this stuff is really really wrong and Fairly quickly after that, McCarthy's actually removed from the from the uh, the committee. It's a bad look for the Senate. Like they are doing a lot of stuff wrong, and the public is finally kind of turning on them a little bit. They're not liking the way this stuff is going. Yeah, there's a lot of comparison between the committee and what's happening in the Soviet Union, which is rough. Right, that's really rough stuff. After his removal, uh, McCarthy's actually censured by the Senate which is uh, basically a formal rebuke by the entire Senate. And he's never quite the same afterwards. He, I don't know, starts drinking a lot more and is, is much more meek and still continues to go on about communists, but really no one listens to him after that. It's a bit of a broken spell at that point, right? The biggest turning point in Hollywood, uh, just to get back to that briefly, is uh, a radio broadcaster named John Henry Falk, who sued one of these blacklist organizations. Uh, this one was called AWARE. Uh, basically saying like I lost I lost I lost my job because of you, um, and he won his case in 1962, which made all of these organizations legally liable for any harm caused by putting anybody's name on a list. Mm. They all went away real quick after yeah. that, real quick after that, and it kind of brings in a flood of these lawsuits and uh, people start coming back around throughout this blacklist era. A lot of these writers continue working often under like pen names, like assumed names. It's not as if they got no work, but man, it was so much more difficult. They're getting zero recognition for their work, which, you know, really where you see all of this kind of fall apart finally is uh, with a, a Supreme court justice named uh, Earl Warren, who as soon as he gets appointed begins striking McCarthy era laws, all of this, like, uh, you know, making association illegal, death penalty for being a communist, all of that stuff uh, starts getting struck down, found unconstitutional, uh, Senate being rebuked for uh, unconstitutional behavior, FBI investigations, things like that. Um, and and yeah, kind of, again, as suddenly everybody just sort of s decides to stop being as worried about the communists. Mm. I think part of it's probably that they hadn't found anybody in a long time. Mm. I think part of it was the realization that the tactics that were being used were 
extremely harmful and uh, a public kind of discussion about whether or not they were worth it. But again, with moral panics, it's tricky, right? It's, it's really tricky to put your finger on why exactly that ends. Things change in the Soviet Union as well. In 1957, uh, you know, Stalin has died. It's a new leadership. There's a disavowal of Stalin by the new leadership. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a new day a little bit. It's right. certainly still got a long way to go. There's quite a bit of, uh, there, there's little lost love between the United States and the Soviet Union, but it's, it's, it's a little bit different. But again, as for pointing to one specific thing that changes here, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that for you. One thing everyone talks about with this era is uh, the Arthur Miller play, The Crucible, from 1952. Mm. It's the one about uh, the Salem witch trials, in which he draws a lot of parallels between the witch trials and uh, and, and the McCarthy era. And and I think aptly, you know, it can be a little bit labored at points, but the, the, the idea of a moral panic, the idea of choosing, um, you know, visceral reactions over, you know, proper investigations is the, the points made and it's to the point now where where the idea of of mccarthyism and 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 witch trials are basically synonymous right. partially partially thanks to this this uh this play but it's it's a reasonable comparison right so this idea of of um worrying about this evil behind every behind every door and 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 yeah it's it was a little bit of an odd time in terms of kind of law and order in the united states but anyways as i said in terms of in terms of a, a hard end or a hard uh finish point there really isn't one you, you can point to mccarthy dying in 1957 uh, i guess but he hadn't had much luck in a while you can point to these laws rolling back but i i, I don't know i don't know exactly what what finishes it but um functionally what we're looking at here is a nearly 10-year period where everyone was very very worried very, very worried about communists, and it, it caused a lot of uh, harm in American life. Sounds like the televised trials. Oh, certainly didn't help things. Kind of precipitated. Yeah. Some of the uh, decline. Yeah, no, it didn't help things one bit. But, anyways, I think that's most of what I want to say about the Red Scare. Ooh. Thoughts, reactions. Yeah. What uh, uh, What was the thing that you were most surprised by? Would you say? I think I was probably most surprised by their ability to link communism with the lgbtq community mm -hmm. and that they were as impacted if not more from mm -hmm. like a, a job loss perspective yeah it's one of those things that on the surface you're kind of going like oh they're using this as an excuse to to persecute yeah. the lgbtq community and no it's not was that. their idea that yeah like they read their idea that that was also un-american i guess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but but it doesn't seem to be there was a, there was an actual like belief in a link between the two things right uh communists were more likely to be homosexual and, and vice versa right I, I don't know i don't know if it's this idea of you know being unmoored from from uh, uh traditional family values or, or what it is precisely that that causes all of that but it, you know that that also i think you know just like uh just like the actual you know witch trials points maybe more towards the the you know, American beliefs about communism than it necessarily does about communism itself. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily, uh, uh, representative in a, in a material way, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very hard to say but anyways. And then, you know, kind of a naive question, I guess, mm -hmm. but were there not more significant repercussions for all of the law breaking on the part of the, the aggravators here the the people who the fbi the fbi let's call it the breaking, fbi yeah sure breaking in 
illegally to mm-hmm. a bunch of homes, which mm-hmm. you're speaking uh, about it with a confidence that indicates to me that this is a proven fact. Yes. It's not a suspicion. No. This is known to have occurred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there not arrests there? No. I, I mean, it's it's hard to, and this is why I mentioned, it's it's hard to understate the level of control Hoover had over the FBI or the amount of overstep he was willing to tolerate. Hoover was very much, from from all accounts that I've seen, a, a, a true believer in his status as a defender of America and American life and all of that. And, and he was very much an ends justify the means mm-hmm. type of person. And that culture permeated the entire FBI. And, you know, yeah, I, I am speaking confidently about it because it is established fact at this point in time. It wasn't something that was well known at that point in time. That's kind of the point, right? Right. And quick little thought experiment. You have an accused communist on the stand and they break out, the FBI broke into my home and stole those documents. There's kind of two things here. Number one, sounds like you're just making stuff up. Mm. Number two, well, even if they did, they found documents there. And justify the means. The systemic nature of it is it, it takes a lot longer to establish. Let's right. put it that way. Um, the FBI says something along the, the the lines of we've obtained documents that that's you know prove so and so blah 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 et cetera et cetera. Frame it in in a way that doesn't involve we we broke in without a warrant. You just don't mention that part. Right. That that phrase we have obtained documents. Like how many times have you heard that in a in a press release about something? Right. It's 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 ubiquitous. Nobody questions it. For somebody to to then say, well, you got that illegally. Prove it. Or even better, they don't know what documents are being provided. The FBI has provided us with evidence that you've done such and such. Isn't not disclosing evidence also illegal? Oh, yeah. Super illegal. So like... These trials were not legal. Yeah. And that's the thing. A lot of these sentences will be overturned later in, on constitutional grounds. But right. like, who has, the, who has the time and resources to escalate a, a case to the Supreme Court, who is basically the only body that can overthrow a lot of this stuff when it's when it's being handed down by a congressional committee, uh, who has the time and resources to make that happen, especially from jail, especially as an accused communist? Yeah, fair enough. There's they they can act with impunity in this situation, and yeah, at, at the risk of sounding cynical, I mean, the idea of the FBI overreaching. <laughs> no, it's it's not a stretch, and this is where I know I'm being naive. I, I just. Know. Oh no, and I, I mean it's worth it's worth talking about. It yeah. is because you do you do tend to think of these organizations as being kind of unimpeachable, right? Like, uh, you know, why, why wouldn't the FBI follow due process? It's like, well, because the leader was a crazy man on a <laughs> on a crusade, yeah, and was willing to authorize all of this stuff and created a, an entire organizational culture of permitting or even encouraging these kind of incursions. And you knew exactly how to word it and exactly how to approach it. He's so the head bad. of the FBI. Who's yeah. going to question them? Yeah. You know, so that's, that's where that comes from basically. So anyways, that's, that's the red scare. They all kind of just went crazy for a couple years there. Ruined a lot of lives. Yeah. And as I said, it's not as though they didn't find anything. The, the question, the question out of the red scare isn't, did they find anything? And it never has been. And anyone who tells you differently is either, is either trying to sell you a bill of goods or doesn't understand it. Right. The question is, the methods that were used in this and the uh, and the um, 
criteria for which people were found guilty or innocent. Were either of those things set appropriately? And I, I tend towards no personally, uh, looking back, especially the the procedural stuff. I mean, those those rules are in there to for very very good reasons. It's we're getting into who watches the Watchmen type territory here, right? right. Like it's 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 you know you set those rules so that everybody knows which rules everyone is playing by and that's how it works what's acceptable in in a society well that's that's malleable that's something that can be discussed but it can't be set after the fact either and um yeah i think that's where the whole red scare really falls short um is is sort of the the moral license that it gets right you know it's it's you didn't play by the rules you should have played by the rules, and, and then the collateral damage is was significant. Significant, absolutely. Yeah, if you'd played by the rules, nobody would be this upset about it. But then it wouldn't have been a moral panic, you know. That's, <laughs> that's how these things go. Yeah. Anyways, thank you so much for coming on. I uh, really appreciate having you here tonight. Thanks for having me. Communist U.S. citizens existed during the 1950s. Soviet spies operated in the same time period. The Communist Party of the United States even began taking Soviet money in 1959, aligning its public positions with Moscow for the rest of the Cold War. None of this is disputed. But the Red Panic is more notable as a time of paranoia in which the US government and populace were willing to allow fundamental rights and constitutional protections to be violated in the name of rooting out a poorly defined and rarely credible threat. It's a cautionary tale about the implications of giving in to moral panics. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that the Russian Civil War ended in 1921, when it actually lasted until 1923. I have no idea where I got that date from, but that correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.